unabashed. The most unpredictable. Becomes a headline. The most volatile. Outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant the Masha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. On Monday, the Indian Finance Minister Nirmala Sitharaman presented one of the most highly anticipated Indian budgets in recent memory. Facing a global health pandemic, a severe economic slowdown, and continued anxieties over inflation, some commentators argued that this budget was the most important of the Modi government's tenure, and arguably one of the most important in three decades. To break down this year's budget and to kick off our fifth season of the show, I'm joined by Sukumar Ranganathan, editor-in-chief of the Hindustan Times. I am pleased to welcome him back to the podcast for the second time. Sukumar, thanks for taking the time. Happy to do this, Melon. So before we get into the fine print and the nuts and bolts of the budget, tell us a little bit about the kind of broader economic backdrop facing India in 2021. And within that backdrop, what did the finance minister need to do in this budget presentation? Actually, if you want an accurate backdrop, you'll have to go back farther than uh, 2020. Uh, you will have to go back to 2018 and 2019 because the Indian economy was already slowing um, and, and it had been slowing consistently even before the pandemic struck. And the main reason this was happening was the lack of demand. Um, People argued that it was cyclical. People argued that it was structural. Uh, but it all boiled down to a lack of aggregate demand. And then the pandemic hit. So it wasn't as if the economy was growing rapidly before the pandemic. It was growing, uh, but it had been slowing consistently. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. India was one of the earliest countries to uh, impose what I'd like to call a hard lockdown, because it was pretty hard. Uh, and it lasted for 68 days, so it was long. And even after the 68 days, the, the return to normalcy uh, has happened in phases. It isn't as if everything was opened up uh, immediately. And, and this clearly uh, took a toll on the economy. It took a toll on jobs. It took a toll on uh, incomes. It took a toll on um, business activities. Uh, and, of course, in addition to everything, there was a pandemic, right? I mean... Uh, there were people falling ill. Uh, uh, hospitals were getting uh, completely overwhelmed with the number of patients they were uh, having to deal with. Uh, so you had that on one side and you had the economic issues on the other side. And then things started improving a little bit and, and uh, the budget came. And, 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 and I think um, the challenge before the finance minister was, was really to, uh, to revive growth, uh, to to and more importantly, to take care of uh, the health aspect of things, right? I mean, one of the things that all countries are increasingly going to focus on going forward is health. Um, most of us thought that we were prepared, and, and clearly we weren't, right? Even the countries that thought they were exceedingly well prepared, uh, the Scandinavian countries, for instance, which, which, which have excellent uh, public health systems, uh, found themselves are really scrambling to deal with this. You, you, you look at Germany, for instance, which I think is a great example, which has, um, I, I think per capita, Germany, I'm told, has more ventilators than any other country in the world. Uh, but the unfortunate thing is they don't have enough people who know how to use them. So so their soft infrastructure is lacking and, and countries are discovering all kinds of issues. And, and the finance minister had to deal with the health aspect of it. But then she also had to deal with growth. 
Um, she also had to, in some ways, take care of uh, the fiscal deficit, right? I mean, um, I think India decided pretty early on that it wouldn't worry too much about the fiscal deficit, but but it still doesn't make sense to uh, let it balloon out of proportion. Uh, although I think the world is a lot more forgiving of uh, uh, fiscal management right now than it was, right? The classic example is Indonesia. Um, they monetize part of their deficit. Had they done this four or five years ago, you would have had analysts in all parts of the world standing up and crying foul, right? And and uh, there wasn't even uh, much of a whimper. In fact, the only debate after that was whether this was a model that other developing countries could follow. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I never heard of uh, uh, a reaction like that. I mean, it, 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 it was completely surprising. So I think the world is in a very, very different place right now. Um, and, and I think it, it, I, I, this is probably a once-in-a-lifetime once kind of budget for anyone. It's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime budget for the, uh, for the finance minister who's presenting it, for people like us who are looking at it and trying to rate it. Uh, it's a once-in-a-lifetime budget because the situation is so unique, it's so strange, and the challenges are so significant. Um, that you really don't know how it's going to be done till it's actually done. So, you know, one of the big debates going on in India since the onset of the pandemic, and in fact, this has been a debate amongst foreign commentators and editorial boards as well, is whether or not the Modi government has been too miserly when it comes to its fiscal response to the COVID pandemic and, of course, the resulting economic dislocation. Uh, in your view, did the government finally decide to deploy its fiscal arsenal in this budget? It depends on uh, what you define as fiscal arsenal. Uh, did they go out and put more money in, hand, in the hands of people? No. Uh, did they cut checks that uh, establishments like restaurants or uh, multiplexes would receive or small businesses would receive? They did not. Uh, did they offer... Uh, salary furloughs of the sort that some countries did, uh, they did not. So I, I don't think um, the Indian government um, offered that kind of fiscal support. It did put money in the hands of the poorest, the, the underprivileged. There were around 400 million poor people into whose accounts uh, cash transfers were made at the peak of the pandemic. Uh, it did launch uh, a very, very sweeping food program, which which benefited uh, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, I, I think around 800 million beneficiaries of that food program, uh, again, which lasted for uh, much of the peak of the pandemic. It lasted for around six months, uh, announced credit waivers, announced moratorium on debt, um, made it easy for uh, banks to deal with potential bad loans, uh, offered credit to uh, ailing companies, but didn't really do the kind of direct cash transfers either at the individual level or at the business level that some of the other countries did. And, and I think this is probably a, uh, it's a philosophical position that I think the government took because it, 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 it it didn't really uh, ever seem to buy the argument uh, that this was necessary, uh, other than at the bottom of the pyramid. But, you know, 
this is a major competing storyline, which is emerging from this budget, if you read the commentary, right? So uh, HT's own Roshan Kishore had a piece in which he said that the fiscal impulse of this budget is actually quite limited. Uh, analysts uh, in other places have argued, actually, the strong focus on capital expenditure in the budget implies a significant fiscal multiplier. So how do we think about what the overall stimulative effect of this year's budget actually is? No, that's, I, I think that's a great question. And, and, and you know, it, 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 it's a logical progression from what we were discussing. Because even uh, though the government didn't put money in the hands of the people, uh, which is one form of a direct fiscal stimulus, I think what it did, even during the pandemic, was to focus on infrastructure creation. What it, and what it has done in this budget is to focus even more strongly on infrastructure creation. If you look at uh, the public expenditure, the government spending um, in this year, in this financial year, which ends on March 31st, and the next financial year for which the budget has just been announced, I think uh, you will notice that there has been a significant reduction in operational expenditure and there has been a significant increase in capital expenditure. So the government's own bet, and, and this is what the finance minister told me in, in the course of an interview yesterday, the government's own bet is that by uh, investing in productive assets, you, you're actually uh, setting off a virtuous cycle of demand. You, you are going to... Uh, if, if you're going to build things, you're going to need cement, you're going to need steel, you're going to need people uh, to create jobs. And, and if you go back in time and, and uh, look at the Indian economic history, every single boom or mini boom in India has been uh, preceded by uh, an increase in construction activity. And, and uh, when you're building projects, you're, you're really embarking on significant construction activity. Uh, and construction is also, it also happens to be the biggest employer of non-skilled labor, um, including agricultural laborers. The way it works is during the agricultural season, these people are in their villages, either working as agricultural laborers or tilling their own small plots of land in many cases. In the off-season, they're in the cities actually working on uh, construction projects because that is the biggest employer of uh, unskilled labor in this country. And I think that is what the government has bet on, that uh, with things returning to normal, and if you look at many of the so-called resumption indices, right? I mean, Nomura puts out a fairly uh, interesting uh, index which factors in uh, a lot of very smart parameters, including the Google Mobility Index, right? I mean, the, the, the advantage we have in this day and age is you, you can pull data from everywhere. You're not dependent on some... Uh, crusty old economic data. You you actually get data in real time. And, and uh, they, they put out a weekly index, which is based on uh, several parameters. And, and I think um, that's nearing normalcy. Uh, the last I checked, it was in excess of 90%. Uh, where 100% yeah, I think it was 95 or 96%. It's 96% now? Yeah. Yeah, so pre-pandemic activity is 100%. So it's, it's right up there. And, and I think that clearly shows that business activity is returning to normal. Um, we have anecdotal reports of industries which were forced to shut down or which, was, which were forced to downsize or uh, scale down their operations at the peak of the pandemic, suddenly discovering the need for the same labor that sort of went back home. 
So they are actually sending out labor contractors. Some of them are hiring fleets of buses and sending them out to get people back to work for them, to the cities. So I think you are seeing some of that activity. Uh, the interesting thing is, clearly, there are still several businesses that are in bad shape, especially small businesses. Uh, there are still many people who have suffered uh, a loss in employment. Many people have seen a reduction in salaries. A lot of people have taken salary cuts. Uh, or a lot of people have seen their earnings fall simply because uh, their business has uh, gone down. And the question is whether this growth will benefit them or whether the government should have continued to focus on much more of the welfare kind of spending. And I think that's really the argument that you have uh, between one group of economists and the other. Uh, and the government's own belief is that investing in growth will help. Uh, these economists are saying we are not so sure uh, because we think there's still distress. So maybe you should have done this. Now, now I, I think the unfortunate aspect is the government is clearly not in a position where it can do both, right? I'm a, money is not infinite. Uh, we'd all like it to be, but I don't think it is. Uh, and um, so the government has chosen to uh, plump for growth. And, and uh, um, these people are saying you should have continued to do this. And I think this is not a debate that you can uh, resolve immediately. I, I think it's something that will get resolved over the next few months. Um, there are some high-frequency indicators that are clearly showing a sequential recovery, uh, but there are equally some indicators that are showing that employment is still not recovered. Uh, so you, you're going to see over the next few months how this plays out. I want to get back to something that you said earlier, which is about the deficit, right? One of the headlines emerging from Monday is the size of the deficit. It stands at 9.5% of GDP in FY21 and is projected to go down to about 6.8% for FY22. By FY26, as we look over at the kind of medium term, um, this government says the deficit will be down about 4.5%. Now, that's a stark contrast to what was the earlier target of a deficit around 3%. Uh, now, of course, as you alluded to, many economists are saying, look, this is a sui generis uh, moment. The government had no choice given the size of the COVID shock. But is it correct to uh, conclude from this then that India doesn't, there's no price to pay for this large deficit? I, I don't think they had an option in this case, right? And and. Um, before we talk of the deficit, I just want to make one comment, which which, which is also about the deficit. Uh, I've been covering the budget for a long time. Right? I've lost track of how many budgets I've looked at. And and I think these macroeconomic numbers that, that were presented in the budget look real to me, right? I mean, they, they look pragmatic. Um, and you must have read about uh, these efforts that the finance minister has taken to move a lot of off-balance sheets uh, spending into the balance sheet. Uh, so the numbers are actually very transparent. Uh, the assumptions are very pragmatic. I don't think they've made huge, uh, as a hugely ambitious or aggressive assumptions for uh, tax revenue. Um, In fact, some have said that they have been very conservative. Maybe they'll be surprised on the upside. Maybe they will be, because even on growth, 
um, I think they've been quite conservative, which, which is what the finance minister said again in our interview yesterday. And she said, my job as finance minister is to be conservative. I can't go out and, and take a very, very aggressive target and then not fail to, uh, and then fail to meet it. Um, I, I think uh, what they've done is, even in terms of no, uh, nominal growth, they've assumed the 14.4% nominal growth, which is uh, a, a full percentage point lower than what the economic chief economic advisor put out in the economic survey. Right, just a few days before. Just a few days before. So I think they've been extremely conservative. And um, is there a price to pay for this fiscal deficit? Uh, will it crowd out uh, private investment? Well, for the next 18 months, I'm not sure private investment is something that you're going to have to worry about. So that, 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 that's a problem that you can compartmentalize, right? I mean, you don't have to worry about it right now. Uh, uh, will international rating agencies uh, look at this and say there's something wrong with this country? Uh, I'm not so sure for two reasons. One, if you look at many of the other macroeconomic numbers, they look solid. Uh, this is not the kind of situation that India found itself in in uh, 1991 when it had to sell the family silver. This is an entirely different situation. If you look at um, the its own forex deposits, or, or if if you look at any of the other macroeconomic indicators, the external situation, uh, India has been very responsible in terms of its debt repayment. It's it's not the kind of country that sought. Uh, a rescheduling of debt. Uh, so I think uh, given the situation and given the fact that other macroeconomic fundamentals are reasonably strong, I'm not sure that the international credit rating agencies are suddenly going to look at this country and say, like, there is a risk here. Um, so, and, and I think that every economy in the world is probably getting very, very aggressive with its fiscal deficit right now, right? I mean, aggressive as in... Uh, um, not not in terms of uh, cramping down on it, clamping down on it, but in actually taking an expansive physic, uh, fiscal position, which is exactly what India has done. You know, if you look back at what economists had written down on their wish list prior to the budget, right? Every uh, investment house, ha you know, issues a kind of pre-budget note. Your editorial pages were filled with uh, people's, you know, uh, to-do lists. It's actually striking to me that many of their "quote unquote" priority asks were implemented, right? So if you if you look at the budget, significant uh, emphasis on disinvestment, on strategic sale of, of public sector banks, of, of of government companies, as well as asset monetization of of government assets and land, and so on and so forth. Now, would you go so far as to say that with these pledges, this budget? marks a significant departure insofar as the Modi government's kind of overall economic approach is concerned? I would think so. I, I think this budget is more uh, to the economic right than many other budgets that we've seen. Um, until now, uh, the Modi government has, has been fairly happy to uh, uh, be very, very centrist in terms of its economic policies. And, and, and I think uh, this clearly marks a shift. Uh, the I think it's among the first time, you know, in India, it's a strange thing. People don't like to use the word privatization. Right. They, they prefer to use the word disinvestment or divestment. Um, and, and I think the finance minister uh, used the term privatization. Um, 
this is a country that nationalized banks right. for it to go out and say that you know we 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 are actually going to privatize two state owned banks um is very very significant um sure it's going to take time there is going to be opposition there is going to be political opposition i have a strong feeling that the bank unions will also probably oppose it um but uh, if the government wants to push it through it can push it through and and the fact is uh, some of the state owned banks are not in great shape uh, they are not in a position where they can scale up and become really big banks india doesn't have really big banks uh, if if you were to uh, uh, draw a global list of banks you wouldn't find a single indian bank in the top 25 i would think perhaps even in the top 30 or 35 and and um there is a reason for that I, i i don't think we've allowed our banks to get really big and and many of the state owned banks can't sure a state bank of india with the right kind of inputs could be able to get there uh, but given the size of uh, the country and given the size of the economy india needs 10 state banks of india and and we don't have that so i think the privatization of banks is a good move the privatization of a general insurance company again a move that will um uh, provoke some opposition uh, uh, and some people might think uh, it's it's not a good idea I, i think it's an interesting idea um and and uh, there haven't been any targets that have been taken against any of these because i think the minister anticipates the challenges uh, but has clearly said that we are going to monetize the land belonging to state owned companies which is a hugely sensitive yeah. i i mean it, it, it's the kind of issue that uh, i think if you go back in time and you look at the first disinvestment exercise or the privatization exercise that india carried out where companies like bsnl were privatized there was a huge issue about the land till it had to be sort of carved out and kept aside and not really transferred to the company that was uh, buying the rest of the com- uh, buying the rest of bsnl which was tata um i think it's very very aggressive in terms of uh, some of these uh, indications of intent um they're very very pro reform uh, and i and i think this is something worth noting um, if you look at many of the things that this government has done and which the finance minister has done over the last year not just now uh, india actually seems to have used uh, this crisis as an opportunity to one clean its books uh, because you don't have off balance sheet items you've moved all of them your numbers are transparent now i don't think there's anyone who's going to look at these numbers and say there is a problem here and two embark on significant structural reforms um, sure some of them are facing opposition including uh, the farm reforms but but many of us had been calling for the same farm reforms for quite some time right uh, including parties that are currently opposing it i don't want to get into the political thing but but Correct. if you were to uh, look at what a lot of us who used to cover who, who've covered economic issues for a long period of time have done we've all spoken about the need for agricultural reform we've all written specifically about the need for market reform in agriculture and that is exactly what the government just tried to do uh, and it's happened in the course of a year when this country is going through a significant crisis uh, because of covid so i find it very interesting there's obviously a lot to cheer in this budget sukumar but the finance minister at the very end of the speech also announced a continued rise in import duties which some argue could hurt india's export competitiveness you know there's a recent paper by the former chief economic advisor arvind subramaniam and shrimitra chatterji which argues that you know contrary to a lot of conventional wisdom india has actually been an exemplar 
of export-led growth, if you look at the last 20 to 30 years. Does this continued inward turn concern you at all? Um, I'd like to answer this at two levels. At one level, um, it's clearly worrying. It's not the kind of thing that I think any country should be doing. It, 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 but, but I have a feeling that it is probably uh, the kind of thing that a lot of countries will be doing, especially in the wake of COVID. Uh, countries do tend to start looking uh, more inwardly, and, and they tend to become more protectionist when they're faced with a crisis like this. Um, I, I think over the next two years, we're, it'll be interesting to see uh, how rapidly global trade bounces back, uh, and because I think that is going to be a significant casualty of uh, COVID. So, yes, it is worrying. Um, specifically in this case, in a, in a lot of cases where the cess, for instance, has been levied, you'll, you'll notice that the import duty has been reduced and then the cess has been uh, levied on top of that to ensure that the net price for the importer and for the end consumer is pretty much the same. It doesn't really change. Um, so uh, that needs to be factored into account for several products. Uh, but equally, uh, this is clearly a reflection of uh, what the government likes to call Atmanirbharta, right? I mean, self-reliance. And, and if you're going to look at boosting uh, some local businesses, uh, you will have to increase a few uh, import duties. Um, now, the, some of these uh, might just be trying to reset uh, a calibration that's gone awry. In some cases, for instance, um, end products, uh, the duty on end products is lower than the duty on intermediaries and things like that. Uh, but in some cases, the motive is purely protectionist. And, and I think that is something that no government can avoid or escape at this point in time. Uh, I don't think it's happened across a spate of products. Uh, I don't think it's happened uh, significantly enough for us to really lose sleep over it. Uh, but I think the fact that uh, there is this undercurrent in the budget means that this is an area that we will have to closely watch simply because um, the current model of uh, how things work in, glo in the global economy uh, is sort of built around global trade, is it's, it's built around globalization. And, and uh, the easiest way uh, to uh, sort of undermine that is, is for countries to just go off and increase their import duties significantly, um, making their own uncompetitive products um, more viable in the local market uh, than far better products from abroad. And, and so it, it is something you'll need to watch for. But like I said, it hasn't happened at a scale that is a cause for concern right now. One of the other moves the finance minister made was she announced the government's intent to allow foreign direct investment up to 74% in the insurance sector. You know, sitting here in Washington, I can tell you that the global insurance industry has been agitating for this move for many years now. You hear the company lobbyists talk about it all the time. At the same time, uh, a few days prior, there were stories emerging in the Indian media that the government's in a lot of hot water over another set of proposed changes to FDI regulations in e-commerce and online retail that would hit uh, global companies like Amazon, like Walmart, Flipkart, and so on and so forth. So how do you think about this latest move? Is it really just about optics, or do you think there's a directional shift going on in government? 
I think you'll have to uh, compartmentalize these two again and look at them separately. Um, I, I'm not sure that there is uh, a philosophical change um, okay. it, when it comes to these two, or, or I, I don't think there is a, um, a, a new way of thinking that has suddenly emerged. The insurance uh, move, the move to uh, allow uh, foreign direct investment up to 74% in insurance companies is a, is a good move. It will happen, um, and I think you should leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Retail, I'm now thinking back. Retail is probably a story that goes back 30 years, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think there have been so many changes in retail because in the 90s, India did allow foreign retail, um, even in supermarkets. And, and, and then um, it changed its policy, and then it changed its policy again, and then it, it had to evolve a new policy for uh, e-commerce. Um, and, and, and these are clearly not e-commerce companies, but e-commerce platforms, because India allows e-commerce platforms, but it doesn't allow e-commerce companies. Right. So I think we've made it fairly complex. And, and the reason we've made it fairly complex is because I think we are worried uh, that we will hurt the prospects of uh, millions of uh, Kirana shop, corner shop owners in this country. Um, my logic is simple. If large Indian retailers are not going to hurt their prospects, um, I don't think uh, large foreign retailers are going to hurt their prospects. If large Indian retailers are going to hurt their prospects, then large foreign ones will. So I, I think you just have to level the playing field. Yeah. If, if you're allowing large Indian business houses like uh, Reliance, like the Tatas, to operate in the retail sector, there's no reason why you should not allow large foreign retailers to operate in the sector uh, as long as follow as they follow all other laws of the land. Um, not a bad idea to have some sourcing restrictions because at the end of the day, uh, you do want small businesses in this country, many of which are good businesses, but you want to give them an opportunity to scale up. Um, so that's not a bad idea. But, but I don't think uh, you should have different rules for different companies. Let me ask you one more specific question on the budget, uh, which is, you know, if you rewind the clock to the pre-COVID era, there were structural factors in the economy inhibiting growth even before the pandemic struck. This is how we began this conversation. One of those was the so-called twin balance sheet problem, right, which was the kind of mix of, you know, toxicity uh, of bad loans on the balance sheets of public sector banks, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the kind of over indebtedness in the infrastructure companies and the big investors. Now, the finance minister announced the government's decision to set up a quote unquote bad bank that will hold stress assets and then sell those to investors at a, at a reduced price. The government has been consistently resisting this move for years now. Do you think it was right to finally back down and endorse this idea? Um I, I've personally written a lot of editorials asking for a bad bank, right? So I, I think you're just going to get one kind of answer. Uh, the thing that uh, I'd like to understand a little better is, is, is whether the government is really serious about this being a bad bank or whether mm -hmm. it's just going to be another asset reconstruction company. Uh, because if it is really going to be a bad bank, I, I, I think what you're effectively doing is you're bundling the debt taking it away from the banks, freeing them up to lend more, right. and giving it to another company, uh, which can then go out and try to recover them. And, and, and if you look at the U.S.'s own uh, TARP 
program yeah. that it launched in um, after the global financial yeah. crisis. 2009, 2008, 2008 2009. 2008, 2009. Um, it had significant success. So, so yeah. there's no reason uh, why that won't succeed. Uh, at least some of this bad debt relates to assets that exist on the ground. For instance, a lot of the debt is in the power sector. And it's not as if the power plants aren't there. The power plants are there. Uh, so, you know, the, there are some assets. A, a lot of these, a lot of the debt has to do with infrastructure projects. It has to do with roads. It has to do with ports. Um, do these exist as they exist? Uh, why has this issue of bad loans then come about? In some cases, it's clearly mismanagement. Um, in some cases, it's clearly financial mismanagement. In some cases, it's also happened because there are resource problems. There are problems with fuel for power plants. There are problems with land. Um, land acquisition in India is a nightmare. Um, it's the reason why every company wants the government to acquire land and transfer it to them uh, because they just um, don't want to get into this mess. It's a hugely complex process, very, very litigative. So in some cases, it's that. And in some cases, it's simply the fact that we've not had institutions that are capable of lending because banks should not be lending to infrastructure companies which have a 20-year window. Insurance companies should be. Uh, the kind of development financial institution that the finance minister announced in this budget should be. But banks shouldn't. It results in a classic asset liability mismatch, and, and at least some of the problem is also because of that. So let me ask you one final thing, Sukumar, which is not about the budget per se, but something that is budget adjacent, I guess, which is the government tabled the final report of the 15th Finance Commission in Parliament. There has been a lot of anticipation about this report because of the trust deficit, which has broken out between the center and the states um, over the goods and services tax, but also over fiscal transfers. What do we know about the kind of broad summary headlines of what the Finance Commission is recommending um, going forward? I, I've looked at the, some, some of the highlights of the report. Uh, I've not gone into it in great detail. And on the face of it, a lot of the fears that were there, um, I don't think are evident in what's been recommended. Uh, for instance, um, one of the fears that a lot of the southern states had, and, and you know this because the southern states have done extremely well uh, in population control, um, and, and, and they were worried that because this um, report would be based on the 2011 census as opposed right. to the 1972 census, uh, there could be a change in allocations to them. And, and the uh, Finance Commission seems to have gotten around it by saying that the allocation right now seems fair, even if you take into account the 2011 census. So it sort of skirted the problem. Um, there has not been a huge change in the devolution formula. <coughs> uh, if you remember, the last Finance Commission made a significant increase in it uh, by 10 percentage points, and there were fears that that would be rolled back to some extent. Again, the Finance Commission has not done it. It's just reduced it by one percentage points because one of the states uh, which was there, which is Jammu and Kashmir, is no longer a state. It's a union territory, which means that spending will have to come from the center. So that change has happened. Uh, so I don't think uh, a lot of those concerns have played out. Um, but we'll have to see what happens going forward, right? I mean, because 
I think fundamentally, and and, and you put it very well, uh, what we've seen over the last two, two and a half years is a huge and yawning trust deficit that is just increasing between the center and the states. Um, so when GST was passed, there, were, there was a lot of bonhomie and, and everyone spoke of cooperative federalism. And I think we've really taken several steps back from that. And there has to be some way in which you can bridge this trust deficit. In the absence of it, things are really going to be very difficult because you, you can't manage a country of this size sitting in New Delhi. You, 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 it's, it's the reason the Indian constitution is framed uh, the way it is. Uh, the primary response to COVID, for instance, has to come from the states. It, 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 it's not something that the, sure, the center can ideate, the, the center can suggest, the center can streamline things like uh, vaccine identification, because you you can imagine the kind of chaos there would be if each state were to go out on its own vaccine uh, identification and purchasing uh, drive. Uh, but, but I think a lot of the implementation has to happen at the state level. So you need to find a way of bridging that deficit. Uh, I Quite honestly, I, I'm, I'm not sure how that can happen, but, but we'd all be in a much better place if it did. My guest on the show today is Sukumar Ranganathan. He is the editor-in-chief of Hindustan Times. He has just given us, I think, a masterclass in budget analysis. Uh, Sukumar, thank you so much for joining us. This is a, one of the busiest times of the year for any newspaper, so we appreciate you taking some time out for us. Thank you, Milan. I enjoyed chatting with you. Kranthamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, kranthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Maya Krishna Rogers is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.